Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. All right, thank you very much. Hello, Nerdcasters. I'm Politico's Scott Bland, and this is The Nerdcast, coming to you live from Politicon, the conference for political junkies here in Los Angeles. I want to intro, I've got two amazing political experts here with me. We've got uh, our national political correspondent reporting out of Chicago, Natasha Karecki. Big hand for Natasha. Hi, everyone. Natasha, thank you so much for being here. And as always on the Nerdcast, we have senior politics editor Charlie Matessian. Give it up for Charlie. Hey there. So on today's show, we're going to be talking all about elections all the time. We are sizing up the midterms that are now just two weeks away. We're going to be talking 2020, which probably to some of your dismay is already underway for those of you who can only bear to deal with one election at a time. But it's already happening. It's already out there. So we, you know, we're going we're gonna to keep talking about it. And we're going to take your questions here in Los Angeles. If any of you can stump Charlie on your congressional district, you'll be immortalized forever as our first live credits reader. So let's get started with segment one. Our first data point, 23. And for those of you who have been closely following the battle for the House of Representatives, you know what that number means already. That's the number of seats that House Democrats need to flip in order to win back control of the House of Representatives in a couple weeks. We're going to size up the map. We're going to talk through what else is going on in the midterms. Charlie, start us off here. Maybe we can even start in California for this question. What's a congressional district that if Democrats win, you know they're retaking the House on election night? I would say the one, that, the one dead giveaway would be, and, and tell me if you think this is cheating, I think it would be the Devin Nunes district in Central <laughs> Valley. And, and maybe that's, that's cheating because it's not really considered a, a heavily competitive district, but keep in mind, Nunes uh, it has a challenger who has raised millions of dollars, which is pretty, pretty remarkable given the Republican nature of that district, given the fact that he would, he would not be vulnerable in any other election year except this one, except his opponent is minting money. And if... Devin Nunes is ever going to be taken down. It's going to be this year, largely because of his role in uh, serving the president's interests in the Russia probe. You know, uh, so for me, that is the one that, that I would look to in California. I don't think it's going to happen. And I'm somebody who thinks that the House is gone to begin with. But I think that would be the one, that would be the giveaway. If Nunes goes down, the House is going down. That's definitely a race that's never been a battleground before, right? right. That's, and I, I think that's the key here. Natasha, you, and I, I know you haven't spent a ton of time on the House landscape, but in your home state of Illinois, there's a few races that definitely have shaped up as potential bellwethers on election night, right? Where if Democrats manage to take those Republican seats, that could be a big, big sign as, as the map moves further west over election night that, that big things are happening. Right. Um, well, certainly in, in Illinois... In Illinois 6, that's Peter Roskam's district, and um, I, I know a lot of us have talked about this in the past, and that's, it is one of those districts that, it was a, that Hillary Clinton won, um, but Peter Roskam won, also won in 2016. Even so, bigger. 
Right. He he wanted by right. He even went, yeah. yeah. So so it's definitely a target. It's one of the top targets in the state. But um, the reason that I would really say it as a bellwether is um, while, while there's a lot of resistance in in that district and there's there's a lot of activism to to get to oust Peter Roskam. Um, he's he's a lot savvier, I think, than a lot of other congressmen. He's really been he knows it's coming. He's been building up his own um, meeting with people behind the scenes. He's not doing town halls, but he's been preparing for this for a while. He's been so, fundraising. He's got the political operation built up. He's got he's been he's been trying to get ready for this. There are some people who get caught by surprise. He's not one of them. That's true. And and yeah. and actually in the 14th district, um, I think Randy Hultgren hasn't been. They haven't been watching him as closely, but I would be less surprised if he was beaten than Peter Roscoe. Because he's been caught by surprise Because a he's bit. been caught by surprise. You have this... Um, and this is, we're kind of talking about like outer rings of Chicago suburbs here. Right. right? And, th- and that, I mean, that would be huge. If Lauren, so, so in that district, um, that's someone, that it's, it's a much more Republican district, at least typically, and there is this insurgent candidate who's, who would be the first African-American. She's a female. Um, she was an Obama appointee. Um, she just hits all those spots, and she has been busting her butt in that district, and Hulkren's basically been doing nothing. Can I make an assertion here, and you tell me if I'm wrong or not, because you're the Chicago expert. I think Illinois is going to be a total bloodbath for the Republican Party. Am I, am I way off? I mean, because you've got House seats, four, at least four House seats, that are in big trouble. You, you've got all kinds of races that look really grim for the Republican Party. Am I wrong? You are not wrong. Um, it, it could be a very, it, I wouldn't say a complete clean sweep, um, but out of 18 districts, you could see 15 of them going blue. And I mean, and that would be with re- if Republicans are able to pick up all four. Um, and then you've got the governor's race. Um, J.B. Pritzker, billionaire, is running against the incumbent Republican governor, Bruce Rauner. Also a billionaire. <laughs> well, yeah, all, an almost billionaire. And um, he's actually less popular than Donald Trump in a lot of these southern, the, the deep red southern parts of Illinois. Um, so, yes, it could be going extremely good. And I think we've, as, as we've seen in previous times that the House House flips, Illinois always ends up being a bloodbath for someone, right? <laughs> it's the, the Democrats wiped out a ton of Republicans there in 2006, and then the reverse happened to them in 2010 when you had Bobby Schilling and Joe Walsh and Robert Dold and all those Republicans come into office in the 2010 wave. And so there would be some interesting symmetry there if Illinois ended up being a big piece of a potential Democratic House takeover. Let me flip the question on its head. What's a seat, Charlie, that you've been looking at where if Republicans hang on and you're watching that on election night, you're going to be thinking, it's like, hey, maybe, maybe they might be able to white knuckle their way through this after two years of this building potential wave. Maybe they'll be able to white knuckle and keep the House at the end of the day. Uh, there's probably a couple. I would say I'll give one thematic kind of race to look at to see if the House is gone, and then I'll, then I'll not chicken out and I'll give you a specific. So to me, the place to look is going to be the suburbs, because if Republicans are going to hang on, I mean, you can just think of your own states, it's because their suburban members are, have figured out a way to uh, battle back against the storm. It's Peter Roskam in the Chicago suburbs. It is some of the members outside of New York City. It is the Orange County uh, members uh, down south that probably uh, represent some of the districts that you know uh, and love. It is the, the Houston suburbs. It is the Dallas suburbs. Uh, because what, what's happening here is you're beginning to see the, the erosion of the suburbs from the Republican coalition. And that started a long time ago, obviously. It began in the Northeast, and then that toxin began to run through the Republican bloodstream. It uh, went from the Northeast to the Midwest. What we haven't seen happen yet is it go, course all the way through to the South 
and through the Sun Belt. And that's what we're seeing now in the Trump era. So th those will be the kinds of districts that you'll see if, the ha if Republicans can hang on. It's because they're able to save some of those members. But if I had to say one district to watch, uh, I would probably say Andy Barr in Kentucky. Mm. And, and here's, here's why. Uh, it's a good one to watch because it'll be the first one to go on election night because Kentucky's polls close so much earlier than everybody else, six o'clock. So out here, if you're from California, you'll know very early on that uh, the House is, you know, Republicans are on the run if Andy Barr goes down. Now, Andy Barr is a member who has been there for a long time. You probably haven't heard about him very much. He doesn't show up on Sunday shows. He's not somebody who cuts an especially high profile. And he's uh, not someone who's had competitive elections in the last few years. Ex exactly. And so he represents a, uh, a Kentucky district, not not really a heavily Appalachian district, like, uh, you know, not a mountain district, but a, a fairly urbanized district by, by Kentucky standards, Lexington area and suburbs. He's got a great Democratic challenger, the kind of challenger he has hasn't had before. And in fact, uh, for some of you political junkies, you probably have run across Amy McGrath's viral video. Uh, you know, there, it's, it's, it's an example of uh, a lot, lots of uh, forces coming together at the same time. So he has got a challenger who is a woman in a great year to be a woman candidate. He has got a candidate with a great profile for that district because of her military background. Uh, she's got a ton of money. So she has everything she needs to win that race. So at six o'clock when the Kentucky polls close, that is something we will be looking at really closely as we try and figure out the House race. And the reason that district is a good one to watch is not just because we'll get the results early. It is because that is a district that Trump won by, what, 15 points maybe? Something in, like that. In, in 2016, it is a district that has not been competitive at the presidential or the congressional level in some time. And it's neck and neck this year. So that tells you a lot about what's, what's going on in, in the uh, atmosphere right now. Natasha, help us broaden out the, the discussion here. Let's talk about President Donald Trump's role in these midterms. You've done a lot of reporting, especially throughout the, the Midwest, on the durability of Trump's appeal in certain places, the, the work that Vice President Mike Pence and the administration and other Republicans have done to help shield that appeal from potentially some unpopular policies that the White House has pursued tariffs being one that we, we've talked about a lot before, right? But tell us, uh, uh, you know, take us inside some of your reporting about how how Trump plays into this all, because that, that's really what it comes down to in a lot of places, how people feel about the president. Right. Well, I'll, I'll start by saying I'll, I'll go into Iowa um, initially, because that, I think, is so indicative of what's happening right now with the party. Um, so here you have these tariffs that have been really hurting farmers across the Midwest, but in no state more so have we noticed it than, than in Iowa. Um, where they're producing soybeans and corn, and um, they're, they're just getting hit with these, these horrible tariffs. Farmers are complaining that they're seeing huge drops in their profits, double-digit drops. Um, they're losing hundreds of millions of dollars. And they, you, know, you will talk to farmers, and they'll talk about how it is destroying their, their livelihood right now. But what they're looking forward to is, is the long term, and they're, they're willing to stick with Trump. I was really struck when I went to the, the state convention earlier this year, and there, there was all this discussion about how these policies were hurting farmers, and you would talk to farmers and they would say yes, but, and then I would ask, are you standing behind Trump? Absolutely, 100%. We will ride this with them. We will take the hit, because they just have that much faith in him. Um, so they're willing to, to, to ride it out. And when you talk to the party about this, you can tell they're very nervous about it. They, they, they see that, that people are following him now, but they think in the longer term, even Republicans in the longer term, that this is all going to come back and, and hurt them. Um, but for the near term, for the midterms, 
people who are hardcore, who were hardcore Trump base people in the Midwest are still with him and they're willing to ride all these different waves. Charlie, tell us a little bit about how that impacts some of these races. We're seeing now at this point, well, we've got two and a half weeks left until Election Day. Trump is on the trail a lot right now. To what extent is that personal popularity that he has transferable to candidates who who need it, especially in in the House landscape that we're talking about? Or is there kind of a disconnect there? Are, Are some of these voters going to want to punish their member of Congress even as they stick with Trump? Well, it really depends on the class of district you're talking about. Like, you're not bringing Trump into the to a suburban district. If you're, if you, there's lots of uh, competitive races, for example, in the Philadelphia suburbs. You're not bringing Donald Trump there. Uh, that would be political death. You're not bringing him into Peter Roskam's district. You're not bringing him in to a lot of places where he is precisely the problem. He is precisely why a Republican member who has not had trouble in the past is having trouble this year. But where he is really useful is in some rural districts. His, his rural strength, as, as Natasha was saying, still remains strong. He's still pretty decent in the, in the exurbs. You know, his numbers are, are uh, holding steady in the places where he was strong before for the most part. You know, there's a lot of talk about Trump's approval ratings being underwater, and that's true, but that's not true across all of America. It's especially true in metropolitan America, but not everywhere. And so there are lots of rural districts where Trump is actually an asset, and you bring Donald Trump in, and you are energizing the base, you are goosing your fundraising, and Trump is a, is, is a great thing to have. But I do think when you take a look at where Donald Trump is traveling right now, that's really revealing because he does more statewide events than anything. He, he is better, in other words, what, what I mean is he is much more useful on the Senate landscape than on the House landscape because the way the Senate landscape is configured when you've got lots of uh, Midwestern states or, or, or big Rocky Mountain states, uh, some of the places like North Dakota, some of the places, uh, West Virginia, those are places, North Dakota, uh, you know, all these places, Trump's numbers are still extremely strong and he's a real asset. So you see him spending lots of time in the places where he can help those Senate candidates and probably less time because his, the, the House landscape where he can be an asset is much more small. Well, and one of the tricky things about the House landscape is you've got a lot of districts where you've got kind of a, a big suburban component and then a long tail out into rural uh, and this is a pro- this, this is a problem for both parties, right? It's Democrats need to figure out how how to appeal to to both of those sets of voters at the same time, but Republicans do too, and that's that's something that that they've been wondering about with respect to bringing Donald Trump to to a particular district. You know, he went to Ohio 12 for that big special election in August, and uh, he went and rallied out in. And, and kind of help them boost up that rural vote. But did, did that cause the Republican candidate to crater in the suburbs a little bit? That's the, the real question. And Charlie, I just want to say, Donald Trump may not be going to, to Philadelphia, but I love that your Philadelphia accent is coming out when you say under, those numbers are underwater. Uh, <laughs> Philadelphia accent? What are you talking about? <laughs> Philadelphia accent. Maybe uh, a little bit. But, but N- Natasha, th- this is a big question in some of those Illinois seats, right? You've got downstate in the 12th district. You've got a kind of the, the urban core of East St. Louis and then just trailing out into these rural rural districts. It's like two completely different pieces of American politics jammed together in one. And that's where you see this tension that we're going to see in a lot of places on Election Day. Well, it's been actually really fun to watch um, how the different congressmen try to handle that. I mean, so so you had going back to Roscom, who we keep bringing up. He is in one of those more suburban districts. And um, so you had uh, actually Mike Pence came out, did an event. And Roskam was supposed to be there, and then he canceled. Oh, did, did he have a scheduling conflict? Is uh, that right, the, scheduling. Yeah, he had scheduling to be, conflict. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. <laughs> he had to be in Washington for a vote, and um, so instead another congressman 
sat in on the panel, so I guess the vote wasn't important for him. <laughs> um, but Pence actually had a fundraiser for Roscom, and Roscom didn't attend it. But then, you know, Trump goes downstate and, you know, they love him there. I mean, like I said, he's more popular than the governor, who's a Republican. And he so everybody's trying to walk this line and the governor will be will not be seen with Trump. So he will go nowhere near that. The, the best thing, though, to watch that is Florida right now, uh, where you, you see. So, so Donald Trump wins Florida, not by a huge margin. Uh, but you see the governor, Rick Scott, who has embraced the, the, uh, the president and is considered a fairly close ally of the president. The president has weighed in in lots of different ways to help. Governor Scott, not just with a hurricane, but to advance his Senate candidacy. Governor Scott embraced him very tightly in 2017, but in 2018, now that he's on the ballot facing Bill Nelson, you know, it's not as close an embrace. And then you also see uh, this this phenomenon in the, the governor's race where uh, Ron DeSantis, who is a, is a congressman who no one knew in Florida, certainly had no statewide profile, is suddenly the gubernatorial nominee, largely because he embraced Donald Trump so closely in the primary. And you may have even seen the ad. There was this viral ad that DeSantis cut where uh, his kid was dressed in MAGA outfit and... Uh, uh, the kid was doing all these sort of Trumpian uh, things, and his entire candidacy is premised on the, the fact that he is close to Donald Trump. And now he has to get a little more difference as he pivots, or a little more uh, distance from the president as he pivots toward the general. And that's a great state to look at how politicians are trying uh, to, to maneuver and pivot around Donald Trump. Charlie, one last question before we take the segment out. We, we brought up the Senate a little bit and just the completely different political world that this year's Senate map is in compared to the House. How, what's, from a historical perspective, you've been watching this stuff for a long time. How odd is it that, that you've got one party that's poised, at, at least maybe on the brink of picking up the House majority uh, in, in the midterms, but could lose seats in the Senate? Potentially a, a good handful of seats. Yeah, it's, it's really unusual. When you, when you look back at the, um, and I spent some time taking, taking a look at this, it's really a, what you see if you look back historically through election cycles is the Senate flips much more frequently than the House. But when the Senate flips, the House doesn't always go along with it. But when you see election years when the House flips, the Senate almost always flips also. And so um, that is true through history, probably for you know somewhere close to 75 years, maybe even longer. But what's unique about this year is here, even if you had a Democratic wave, uh, because of the vagaries and the, uh, of the Senate map this year, because of the landscape, uh, just because of the, the you know the roll of the dice in terms of what Senate races are up, you could see a situation where it is a tremendous Democratic year. There is a wave. The House is gone, falls into Democratic hands. Yet the Republicans still hang on to the Senate because the map is so hard. And in fact, it's been said that the the Senate map this might be the hardest for a single party in history since since the beginning of direct elections. That's how hard it is, and it's largely because the Democrats path to uh, to winning a majority runs through the the strongest parts the strongest most Republican pro-trump parts of America the the whitest the most rural the most pro-gun the most pro-life the hardest parts for Democratic candidates to run in and that is the way the Senate map is configured all right I think that's gonna be it for our midterm discussion but before we uh, finish this segment a quick plug for those of you out there who now after listening to the segment feel like you're equipped to to pick the winners in all the battleground races that are coming up around the country we've got Politico's playbook election challenge coming up and what that is you can correctly pick the winners of a number of battleground house races Senate races governor's races that we've selected around the country and if you pick enough of those winners and you win the contest you could win prizes there's I think they're giving out a new iPhone 
and they're giving out a whole bunch of stuff. Real prizes, so, huh? Real prizes, <laughs> real prizes this time. Real pri- not, not for, like a coffee not for us. We're, we're, we're not allowed to play. We're not allowed to play. But you can play at politico.com slash playbook election challenge. So check it out. What do you have to lose, as our president would say? Speaking of which, let's move into our next segment now. Our next data point is the number 10. And that's how many out-of-state Democratic politicians are visiting Iowa for rallies this month, according to a recent tally by the Des Moines Register. They're there for for 2018, sure. They're turning out voters. They want to get voters really jazzed about the state auditor's race in Iowa. I think that's that's the big plan. But in in an age of extreme unsubtlety in politics, this strikes me as just particularly unsubtle. We know why these people are there. They're there for 2020. They're thinking about running for president. It's already starting. So let's talk about 2020. Lightning round. Charlie and Natasha, yes or no, can Donald Trump be reelected in 2020? Yes. Absolutely. All right. That was very lightning. That was very fast. Let's, let's try a different, a different take on this. Will he be reelected? And elaborate a little this time. Natasha, what do you think? Will he be reelected? Um, I mean, as of now, I would say yeah. Um, if you look at the Democratic field, um, it's, it's a little all over the place. Um, and and, and I, I guess it just a lot of it depends on will, there, will Democrats really elect somebody who is in line with what's on the ground. I think what we're seeing so much, even with when we get to the 2020 people and, and, and the national, what some of these 2020 candidates, contenders represent compared to what's on the ground in these states and what those candidates are doing. For instance, you, you look at people in Iowa or, or, or Wisconsin or Illinois who are trying to run more centrist kind of campaigns, particularly for governor. Um, And Iowa is a really good example. Um, And then you have people like Bernie Sanders coming in, Elizabeth Warren, possibly Cory Booker, and those types who are are much more to the left. Um, So to that extent, if someone who is too far to the left ends up being elected, I would just say that it would be a a lot more, it would be not as much in line with with what's what's happening on the ground and, and the mood of Democrats right now. This is, this is very interesting because you, you've, you've put Charlie's contrarian nature in a bind here because I feel like he always wants to go against the grain of what, what people are talking about and say, you know, of course Donald Trump can be, can be reelected, but you've, you've just stolen something. So, Charlie, tell, tell us why, tell us why this, this is ridiculous. And of course Donald Trump's not going to be reelected. You're killing me, Natasha. <laughs> um, so for, first I'll say one of the most interesting things you see in, in the polling, in the crosstabs, and when I say crosstabs, if you're not a, a polling judge, what we're talking about here is oftentimes when you see a story about a poll, we're talking about a top line, which is the, the, the most obvious fact that's pulled out of a poll. But when you drill down into what are called the crosstabs, when you begin to see how people vote through their demographic groups, there's a fascinating trend, and I love looking at this, uh, because Democrats, by high numbers, and especially Democratic women, are convinced Donald Trump has no shot at all. It's over. How could this guy ever win election? All my friends, they all hate Trump. There's no way this guy can win a second term. But the reality, though, is that because of the nature of the field, the fragmented nature of the field, because of the pressures there are going, that, that will be there to, to drive uh, the candidates leftward in, in, in ways that could hurt candidates in the, in the uh, general election, there are lots of opportunities for, um, for the president in, in 2020. And in fact, when you talk to, and this is something Natasha and I have talked about in terms of like how do you storify this, this idea, 
lots of Republican consultants. And I've been struck by this. Many Republican consultants that, that I know that hate Trump, they're, they're never Trumpers, they'd never admit it because it would hurt their business, of course. But <laughs> like people that you know hate Trump, they're convinced that Democrats will give it away for lots of reasons and they will make an argument. So, if, but if, if it's, if my job is then to make the case for how, is it to make how Trump wins or doesn't win? Well, he no. doesn't win, right? Okay, so if he doesn't win, it's because the map changes. And, here, and here's why. Like his, the map changes in an important way through the Midwest. And you'll have your first taste of this, I think, on November 7th, the day after Election Day. You'll see it in the Midwest. You'll see that the states that he won, the Wisconsins, the, the, the Iowas, the Michigans, they will... Uh, they will come unmoored from the uh, Republican coalition and they will move elsewhere. I think that's how you will know. And he can't, and that's the hard thing. So the way he loses is he cannot replicate the Republican coalition he put together because it's, it's hard to overstate how, how he caught lightning in a bottle in 2016. No one thought he was going to win those kinds of states. And in fact, uh, what's most amazing, if you take a look at Wisconsin, and I don't know if anyone here reads Real Clear Politics, and they have you know great poll listings if you're kind of a, a nerd for polls. If you look through like the final 20 polls, Hillary Clinton won every single one of them. You know, she was the leader, at least, in all of them. And so it was kind of a surprise. And, what, and it wouldn't take much to unravel that coalition, in part because uh, those wins were not sweeping wins, no matter what the president says. Like you're talking about 25,000 votes here, 40,000 votes here, 10,000 votes there. That flips those states. And when you see the wave of Democratic enthusiasm, uh, that, to me, suggests you look at Minnesota as a perfect example Trump almost won Minnesota of all places the one place that voted for that didn't vote for Ronald Reagan in his sweeping landslide 84 election I don't know that Trump can deliver the same performance in Minnesota again certainly nothing looks like that right now when you look at that playing field but if he is going to lose it's because he can't replicate the midwestern part of his coalition Natasha, let's let's peel back this this question a little bit, and we've we've kind of jumped to the end of the, of 2020 <laughs> a little bit. But let's let's jump back into the present, and you're you're you've been reporting a lot already on what's going on in the 2020 election in 2018. Tell tell us what that means. What what are people doing? How do you get ready for an election that's over a year away? Like what and who? What are what are people doing to take those steps? Are we talking about we're talking about travel? We're talking about staffing? Mm-hmm. We're talking about fundraising? We're talking about DNA tests? Right, exactly. Well, it it, it certainly, if you just look to Iowa, I mean, as you started out saying that 10 10 people are doing some kind of rally, 10 different potential 2020 contenders, I I think as we speak right now, there's probably more getting added to the list. Um, It's a very high traffic zone right now in Iowa. And and as you said, you know, uh, Cory Booker came out um, a couple weeks ago and, you know, he was fundraising for the Secretary of State candidate. A key race. um, Everyone always wants to know who's going to win the Secretary (laughs) of State. Race, right? <laughs> but I'm, you know, I will say going back to Cory Booker, um, you know, there was this little game, unspoken game going on um, with a lot of these top tier people who who were just not going to go to Iowa um, until Cory Booker went, and and he um, he spoke in front of one of the biggest fundraisers and Democratic events, and he was in front of all the most influential people, and he came. Um, 
right after casting the Brett Kavanaugh vote, he, he had a scramble again on the plane and he arrived there. And, and this is right, right at this moment where all the Democrats were just like feeling really down, feeling like they lost. You know, this is one more defeat. And here he came in and he just wowed everybody. He lifted everybody up. By the end, they're all like chanting, responding to him. He, he just won them all over. And I think after that, everyone else on, in the field panicked. So you started hearing, you, even before his speech, you started hearing this, but really after that, all of a sudden, you know, um, Kamala Harris is coming through. She, 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 she leaked that out that weekend. Bernie Sanders leaked out that he was going to come through. And, and as we've gone on week by week, it's just completely, it, it, it's as if the race has already started. So, and, and not only are they going through and, and you know, being like going out, um, doing get out the vote rallies, going on college campuses, all that stuff. They're also sending their staffers there. So you have like people like John Delaney, who's basically moved in. Who? The, <laughs> this is a, this he, is what a three-term Maryland congressman who announced last year that I'm running for president. Right. And he's been living in Iowa. He has basically taken up residence in Iowa, in New Hampshire, and he's he's spent he's on TV there. Um, I know most people probably have not heard of him, but in Iowa, he has been able. All this work has gotten his. There are John Delaney fans <laughs> now. Is that is that what there's, we've come there's to? There are some John Delaney fans. He's also on TV, and he's gotten his. Um, people know who he is. His name ID is way up. Wait, raise your hand if you know who John Delaney is. <laughs> in Iowa. What? See. <laughs> people in Iowa know who he is. He's big in Iowa. He's big anyway, in Iowa. my point, my bigger point was um, that that it's not just appearing in Iowa. It's it's sending staff, showing that you're 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 invested in Iowa's future in one way or another. So all these different candidates, you know, Elizabeth Warren, Harris, um, Booker. And John Delaney have um, have paid for staff, staffing not just in uh, in Iowa but in New Hampshire. I mean, so they're they're so to be clear, they're sending, they're like paying for field workers to go on the ground and help elect local candidates. So they're just investing in in, in their own futures by doing that right now. And and Natasha, I, I have to ask you, uh, you've been doing a, a, a bit, fair bit of reporting on. Um, another Politicon attendee who's not quite quite as famous as we are, but his name is getting out there a little bit, and that's that's Michael Avenatti. What's what's your read on his political ambition, and also what's he like to talk to in person? Michael Avenatti. Um, so, so Michael Avenatti is um, completely different when you talk to him on the phone or in person than he is on TV. He's nothing. I wouldn't say nothing like he is on TV, but he's he's much more relaxed, um, down to earth, like has all day to chat sometimes. Um, I, I always think back on my first phone call to him in which I, I, I was sure like once you get a principal on the phone that he was only going to have like a minute for me. So I, I, I had like my top questions ready to go and um, I, I, I rattled him off because I was sure he was going to hang up because he had to do CNN or MSNBC or something. Or like a press conference on the steps of whatever courthouse Stormy yeah, Daniels Yeah, or tweeting at Donald Trump, Trump whatever right. it is. <laughs> yeah, um, that he was really, you know, and um, I'm, I'm asking him my first three questions and then my next few and then my next few. And before I know it, we've been on the phone for 45 minutes. And I say, I think I've got to go. Um, but, I mean, which is to say he's not like that all the time, but... I think it's more indicative of you just don't know what you're going to get from him. Um, he he can be you know at war with someone one moment and then have all the time in the world and can kind of really work the media. Um, but 
Yes, to answer your question about ambition, he's very ambitious. He's, he's, do you think he's actually going to run for president, or do you think he's just trying to gin up interest oh, he's, in himself? I, I mean, he, he's been to 20 states. He's, wow. um, he's been in New Hampshire and Iowa. He's been to Ohio five times. He's going back to Iowa. Yeah, I think he's taking it very seriously. He's hired some staff. He's trying to raise money. He's doing all those things. And I will add, and we've written about this before, unlike a lot of the other the Democratic establishment that's tried to, you know, take shots at Trump, he's really the only person who's actually drawn blood in the past. I mean, say what you will, he's had some success. And at the risk of delving too deep into Michael Avenatti world, <laughs> I just want to tee up one question for you because I was fascinated. Now, we all do different things at Politico. Uh, Natasha and I work fairly closely as, uh, as editor and big star reporter. And what I was really struck by, Natasha, was your reporting about Avenatti. I don't think I knew how serious he was about this. Now, you know, people have strong opinions about him, particularly in Washington, Democrats. Lots of people, I know you're shaking your head, lots of people in Washington can't stand him, think he's a joke. But what I was struck by in your reporting when I saw it for the first time was, mm -hmm. he's, he, for, put, put aside the, the sideshow aspects of his candidacy. Put it aside? No, how? Because <laughs> he is, no, this, this is the important part. There are lots of very serious Democrats, serious Democratic operatives who have been in contact with him. Talk about that part of your reporting, because I know I was stunned when I, when I got the copy from you, and I was like, really? <laughs> no, that's a really good point. I mean, and I think that's, that's what strikes everyone, is, you know, you, you just make assumptions about him because of the, the TV persona, but um, I, I was talking to a lot of strategists on the ground who've been in the game for years, and they were all, a lot of them off the record, um, some of them on the record, um, were saying the same thing, which was they were shocked when they saw him in person. Um, not only like one-on-one, -on -one, you know, what he knew about policy, what kinds of ideas he had, the whole, you know, we have to fight, we have to fight harder, we have to hit back harder, but also just the way, the, his, the retail side of him. Um, so he spoke at the Iowa Wingding dinner, which is one of their, another big one, yeah. And um, there were several other people, I think including John Delaney um, was there. <laughs> um, but, but he got the crowd on its feet. They, he got everybody, it's numerous times. And you know, you had these strategists who see, I mean, they're in, if you're an Iowa and a strategist, you've seen everyone come through a million times, right? So for them, some of these top people to be saying that they were impressed by him and not dismissing him, I think was very telling. So the big takeaway here is when you leave, Scott Bland of Politico said that Michael Avenatti will be the Democratic nominee in 2020. <laughs> you heard it first. Big, big takeaway. All right. We, we started with a lightning round. We're going to end with a lightning round. Give me, uh, and maybe Avenatti will be part of this. Charlie, when, when we get into March or, or, or April of 2020, who do you think the last, the last two, I'm not going to ask you to do one, but who are the last oh two Democrats standing God. who are going head to head battling it out for the nomination? Oh, that's so hard. Um, it's lightning. It's lightning. It's got to strike oh, there's fast. No, there's no lightning here because the, <laughs> the field is so fragmented right now. I, I'll just say who I think are, is really strong right now. Uh, I think Kamala Harris generates an enormous amount of energy and enthusiasm at the Democratic base. Now, I know for, for many Californians that are familiar with her, you, you find this a little bit surprising because you only know her as the a AG and she hasn't had a long career in politics. But I'm telling you, outside California, uh, that's what activists are talking about everywhere. Kamala Harris. Uh, 
you know, I think I tend to think that that Bernie and uh, Joe Biden will really struggle because of their age. Because one of the things that's going on right now in the Democratic Party is it is going through a transitional period, and lots of people focus on the idea that there's an ideological battle here or an ideological civil war. I think it's less about an ideological civil war. So much of it is generational, and and you see this in, expressed in many ways. And I think the idea of having uh, a nominee in their 70s will be tough for a lot of. Uh, the Democratic grassroots to uh, to deal with. So to me, Kamala Harris, Harris is somebody who's maybe built to last in part because of the digital infrastructure she's building right now. She's sort of quietly plowing a ton of money into building the kind of digital fundraising infrastructure that you need to compete throughout the campaign. I think Booker, you know, there, there's some aspects of his candidacy that, that I'm not sure are built to last, but I think he's also generating uh, a lot of energy at the grassroots level. All right, Natasha, Charlie's given you a lot of time to think here. Oh, who, who's who's one, one more candidate who you think is built to last well, through this process? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I think Booker is very underrated. And I, I mean, I, and, and having seen him, and, and I'll say that I, I've, I've probably seen him more than others um, up close. And, and I mean, there are people who, I mean, there was an Elizabeth Warren, um, one of the top strategist for Elizabeth Warren in the past said once he met Booker he's done if Booker runs I'm behind him and there's some he has that certain quality that you you can see maybe catching fire I see someone rolling their eyes right now (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I mean and I'll say just his impact in Iowa he went in front of the Black Caucus I mean and people were just completely wowed by him Um, so just as far as being able to make inroads there you know and it's funny I I don't think Elizabeth Warren came up in either of our just a little bit I I think I think there's going to be another Elizabeth Warren boomlet at some point but the, the one thing the one thing I'll say about this is that I think if there was a big lesson that I took from the 2018